Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? All right. If you have a Bible, open it to Romans chapter 12. We left off at verse 3 last week, and that's where we're picking up this morning. Romans chapter 12, verse 3 through 8 is our text. This morning, as you're finding that, let me mention, let me just invite you to our prayer meeting this Wednesday night. We started a, a new midweek fellowship block Last Wednesday, had a wonderful time praying together, and um, I, I just encourage you to come this Wednesday night. We're going to do a short teaching on prayer, and then, and then spend the balance of our time, the majority of our time praying together. It's just a sweet time in the Lord, so I encourage you to come to that. This Wednesday, we'll have dinner. Um, please RSVP, and, or just show up. But if you didn't RSVP, don't steal somebody else's chicken. So where are we in Romans, before I read Romans 12, verses 3 through 8? The, the context of our passage this morning, which is about life together as a local church, and the humility that God calls us to as believers, is really standing on the shoulders of everything that Paul has said up to this point, that we all are sinners saved by the grace of God, all of us, and that our only hope is that Jesus has made our dead hearts alive and put us into his family and given us a ministry that he now calls us to as a local church. And in that context, Paul begins chapter 12, which is a transition in Romans. Chapters 1 through 11 up to this point have been all of Paul's thorough explanation of the good news of the gospel, about how God has made a people by grace for himself by giving the gift of faith to those whom he saves so that they would believe that Jesus in his life, his death, his resurrection, and his supreme reigning over all things, that's the good news. And in light of that, Paul says, a transition now in chapter 4, in light of this now, because God, God is your creator, your savior, your everything, give everything, give yourself as a living sacrifice to God. And don't be conformed to this world, but by the renewal of your mind... You, you, you transform yourself into the image of Christ. And now, verses 3 through 8 are the setting, the context for this sanctification, which is life together in the local church. So let me pray. Let me read verses 3 through 8 and then, and then pray, and we'll, we'll work our way through this. I see three truths in this text that I want to bring out. But let me read the text first. Paul says, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Huh. That's in the Bible. Let me read that again. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. 
having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us. Father, thank you for this text, for Paul's practical instructions after this beautiful explanation in 11 chapters of the grace of the gospel. And now, how by your Holy Spirit, you you inspired him to turn his attention to how we in community are to live out these truths. I pray that you would help us. We we want to be formed more into the image of Christ. We want to be renewed. We, we want to not be conformed to this world. But this is not an individual pursuit, Lord. You've given us one another. And, and we confess that as Americans, we're often handicapped in understanding this biblical truth because we, we pride ourselves on being self-starters and individuals. It's, it's woven into the fabric of our culture and we, we need to see it. We need to see it in our individual lives. We need to repent of it. And we need to press on into all that this text is calling us to. So help us, Lord. Help us to be, be more like Christ as a, as a church as a result of this text. And as we've prayed already several times for my friends that are in this room that don't know you, Lord, I pray that you would do what only you can do, that you would take their dead hearts, that you would make them alive, that you'd give them eyes to see, that you would bring them to life so that they can trust in Jesus. I pray that you do all this for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So I see three truths in this text, and, and again, they're just really basically straight from the text, and I want us to, to think about them and apply them to, to our life as a congregation. The first is this, don't think of yourself too highly. Don't think of yourself too highly. Look again at verse three, Paul says, for... By the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. I was listening to a sermon on this text by a respected New Testament scholar and professor at Southern Seminary, Tom Schreiner, and he shared this anecdote from this article written by a man named Paul Witz, who is a, uh, a psychologist, and the, the title of the article was The Problem with Self-Esteem. And apparently there was this study with, with, they looked at eight countries, and of these eight countries, they looked at the mathematical performance of the students in these eight countries. And of these eight countries, America was one of them. And they looked at the scores of the students, and they ranked them one to eight. And then they looked at the self-esteem of these students as to how they thought they did on the mathematical evaluation. Well, the American students ended up being the worst of the eight countries in mathematical test scores. But they were the first in their self-esteem of how they thought they did. (laughs) And the Korean students were actually the best in their mathematical performance, but the worst in their self-evaluation of how they thought they did. The the, the critique, I think, to us as a culture is obvious. 
And it amplifies this point that we live in a, a kind of self-esteem addicted culture. And Paul is saying here, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to. But he starts it off, and we need to see this. He says, for, for the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. This for connects what follows Paul's admonition to not be haughty to what Paul has just said. He's just said that in light of what God has done, give yourself as a living sacrifice to God. Do this by not being conformed to this world, but rather being transformed by the renewal of your, of your mind. So why is the four at the beginning of verse three so important? Because, I just mentioned this, if we stop reading at verse 2, this beautiful text that we're, we're so familiar with about how we are to be living sacrifices to God, not conformed to the world, but transformed by the renewal of the mind. If we stop at verse 2, and that's, that's all we glean out of Romans 12 about, about the Christian life and about sanctification, we're in danger of drifting into individualistic, warped spirituality. But that's not the Christian life. It's not an individual effort. Paul is saying here, in light of all this, for by the grace of God I say to you, don't think of yourself more highly than you should. In other words, place yourself in the context of what God has done in your life in the Christian community. And notice he says here, I say to everyone among you. So he's not saying this to, you know, have, we ever, uh, have you ever listened to a sermon? You may be doing this right now and you may be thinking, man... I wish Joe was here. He really needs to hear this. <laughs> well, I mean, we've all done that. Um, but Paul is, he's not giving us any wiggle room here. He's saying, for the grace given to me, I say to everyone, Joe and you, not to think of yourself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So this, this phrase here, what is that phrase, the measure of faith that God has assigned? What does that mean? Well, there's, there's two kind of major opinions. Some, some scholars think that what Paul is saying here is that he's, he's, when he says the measure of faith, he's really talking about just the essence of Christian belief. In other words, he's, he's given it to everybody that he saved. And so because God has sort of equalized everything, he's given that to you. And so don't think of yourself more highly and just compare it to just the, the gospel that he saved us all by and therefore just sort of be humble. The other uh, perspective is that he's not referring here to, to a kind of standard of Christian belief or saving faith in Christ but to varying degrees or amounts of faith that he gives to people after he saves them. So not this saving faith that he gives us, but this kind of difference in levels of strength of faith that he gives to individual Christians. And I think there's good arguments on both sides. I think this seems more likely to be, to be the case and to fit the context. I think, in fact, we'll see when we get to Romans chapter 14 eventually, where Paul gives instruction on caring for people within the body of Christ who are weaker in faith. And so let's step back and look at what he's saying here in verse 3. He's saying, don't be, don't have, a, don't have an exalted opinion of yourself, but, be, but with a sober judgment, assess who you are wisely in the context of life together, 
knowing, knowing that God has made you and given you sovereignly by his grace a measure of faith that has made you somewhere on the spectrum of life in the community stronger or weaker. And that is God's doing. God has made you the way he's made you. And so, why is this so important to see? If you happen to be somebody that has stronger faith, that maybe has a particular set of gifts that God is using in fruitful ways, don't think of yourself more highly than you should because the reason you're like that is because of the measure of faith that God has given you. So it's not anything that you did. It's God giving it to you for some purpose beyond yourself. And conversely, if you are a person that struggles at times, and by the way, isn't that all of us, even the strong among us? Come on. If you're a person that finds yourself maybe in your self-assessment wisely, biblically, maybe weaker at times, friends, even then, that is not outside of God's providence. He has assigned you a kind of measure of faith, and that's part of his will and providence in your life, so that through your life, he might, as you wrestle, and don't stay comfortable, you got, friends, don't, don't take this as an excuse, oh, well, God has given me a kind of weak faith, so I can just be kind of like a, you know, a dead fish, right? No, but because there's a whole bunch of other admonitions in the Bible about how we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling and to strive and to, to pursue all that God has for us and to grow in grace. But look at God's providence in your life. See what this verse is telling us is that consider yourself humbly and realize that God has purposes in making you the way he made you. Look at, listen, listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. This is the point Paul is making. He says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay. Another way of saying that is that we're cracked, unimpressive pots to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. So the point is, is that however God made you, whether you're, you're strong, humble yourself. It's God who did it. Or whether you find yourself wrestling with things that things people around you in community, in the church, don't wrestle with. Even as you strive, don't disdain yourself. Don't, a kind of reverse pride is to loathe yourself because you're not who you want to be. But when we, when, we, when, we, when we get in that mindset, we don't understand what Paul is saying here is that somehow God has made you who you are to put your life on display. And I, let me give you this if you find yourself on the weaker spectrum. In a way, you are more poised to display the surpassing worth of God than a person who is stronger. Because in your life, it will be, I think, more evident that God is working in you because your life is a greater, is a greater testimony to the goodness of God. This is what Richard Sibb says. He was a Puritan pastor back in the 1600s, and this is a kind of sentiment that I think comes out of this text. It is we all think of ourselves with humility and not too highly. It should produce in this, this kind of disposition, Sib says, in community. 
And he's speaking in kind of antiquated, um, antiquated 1600s Puritan language, but yeah, I think you'll get it. Listen to what he says. I love this. I've read it here before many times, but it's been a while. He says, the Holy Ghost is content to dwell in smoky, offensive souls. I love that. Oh, that that spirit would breathe into our spirits the same merciful disposition. We must supply out of our love and mercy that which we see wanting in them. The church of Christ is a common hospital wherein all are in some measure sick of some spiritual disease or other. So all have occasion to exercise the spirit of wisdom and meekness. That's true. So when we look at ourselves in community, we realize that, friends, we are the way we are, not because of anything we have done, but because God has saved us. And friends, that, that's, a, that's a word to anybody in this room that may not yet be a Christian, and you may be wondering what it means to be a Christian or what it takes to be a Christian, and you may walk into this church. I've heard this from people before, and every chance I get to try and strangle this thought, I do it. You may be tempted to think that there's a bunch of people in this room who think, who look like they got it going on. Friends, don't be deceived. Everybody comes to Christ the same way. Nothing in our hands we can bring simply to thy cross we can cling. So just because somebody may be from another demographic or have on a nice coat or look like they can comb their hair doesn't mean that they come to God any more qualified than you. Don't let social demographics rank order you in God's people. Everybody comes, whether we're strong or weak, however God has made us, we all come needy. The gospel of grace is the good news that we are dead in our sins, and when God saves a person, he makes them alive. And so that should, I mean, just understanding the gospel and thinking about it and dwelling on it and meditating on it should should just produce in the Christian a kind of pervasive humility, right? A pervasive humility. And pervasive humility cuts both ways. It cuts against those who are tempted to pride, and it cuts against those who are tempted to self-loathing. Because, think about this, if you're in this mindset that I am too bad to ever be saved by God, you, you, that's a kind of reverse pride. Do you see that? You're coming to God saying, you know what? God can save all of these people, but I'm such a knucklehead. Me, the strength of my despair is greater than the grace of Christ. Don't do that. Don't do that. What you're actually doing there is you're actually thinking of yourself really, really highly, and it's disguising itself as self-loathing. Do you see that? And we, we, we all, we, We're all prone to that. Don't do that. Don't think of yourself too highly. Truth number two, the church is a diverse body united together in Christ. Again, this is not, this is straight from the text. This is, this is clear, I think. Verses four and five. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ Christ. 
and individually members of members one of another. Well, one of Paul's concerns throughout the letter of Romans is the unity in the church in Rome between Jews and Gentiles. And, and when we started this Roman study two years ago, surely you remember this point that I made at the very beginning, <laughs> um, is that one of the problems in the church in Rome is that there was disunity between Jewish Christians and Roman Christians. And what had happened in the Roman church at that point was about 10 years before Paul writes the letter to the Romans, there was a Roman emperor that had evicted or kicked out all Jews, whether they were believers in Jesus or not, just all ethnic Jews. He, he, he evicted them from Rome, kicked them out of Rome, made them leave Rome. And that Roman emperor died, and when he died, his edict of evicting the Jews from Rome kind of went with him. And when the new emperor came into power, uh, the, the Jews were allowed to come back to Rome. And shortly after that is when Paul writes the letter to the church at Rome. And so what the situation is, is that the gospel hits Rome, Jews and Gentiles become believers in Jesus. The church is a combination of Jews and Gentiles, believing Jews and believing Gentiles. And then the Jews are all kicked out of Rome. And so for five to 10 years, the church in Rome was basically all Gentile, all culturally Gentile. And then the Jews are allowed to come back. So these believing Christian Jews now are integrating back into the life of the church. And there was tension. There was tension. And so Paul's one of the themes throughout, Rome, throughout the letter to Romans is the unity of believers, both Jew and Gentile, that all people, all of us from all different tribes and tongues and nations are one in Christ. And, and that's a, a major concern of Paul, and it's a major concern of ours to get still today in, in our setting. And how does, he, how does he fight that? By reminding them that they are one body in Christ. Look at verse 5 there. It says that we are one body in Christ. This is another reminder of, of how God has saved us. It's, it's, it's almost as if Paul can't even make a point without attaching it to the gospel somehow. And we see him do that here again in verse 5. Even, even the point that he's making about the unity and the diversity that is together in the local church, in the church in Rome, all of this is because of what God has done to put us together in Christ. Listen to what he says earlier on in Romans chapter 6, verse 5. He says, For if we, speaking of Christians, speaking of believers in Jesus, if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So, what is Paul saying here? That's the great doctrine of the union of the believer with Christ, that we, by faith, when we're dead in our sins... God makes us alive, gives us a new heart, gives us the gift of faith by which we can believe in what Jesus has done on the cross to bear the wrath of God, satisfy it, extinguish it, remove it, and that faith then justifies us, which then makes us part of the family of God, and here's the biblical language, unites us, unites us to Christ. So we are 
We are grafted together with him. We are, we are one with Jesus. And to be one with Jesus is to be part of his body, which is the church. And so spiritually speaking, if you're a Christian, you have been united inseparably with Jesus and everybody else that is united with Jesus also. So think about this. Think about this. If you're a believer in Jesus and you are of a particular culture or family or ethnicity or nation or family, you are more closely united, spiritually speaking, for eternity with believers in Jesus from other cultures, from Europe, from Africa, from Asia, than you are even to your own family members who don't know Jesus. And that should transform how we view the body of Christ. We are grafted together, we're knit together, we're united, we're part of the same body. We're, we're, in fact, the whole doctrine of perseverance, this idea that a Christian, a true Christian, will persevere to the end and not lose their salvation, I think that's very true. But all of that is bound up. It's based on this idea that you've been united. You're part of Jesus' body. And Jesus isn't going to lose any part of his body to this world. Jesus doesn't get to the end of time missing some fingers and toes. Jesus preserves all that is his. But all that is his is more than our subcultures. It's people from every tribe and every tongue, people from every demographic, people from every language group, people from every different walk of life. Rich people, poor people, people from California, everybody. And if you're from California and you're offended, I can't believe he said that. I'm from the nation of California, so... Do you, do you see this? Do you see the gospel as the foundation of the point that Paul is making? That we're one body. And this one body, I think, has a universal and local expression. What do I mean by that? The church, in one sense, is universal. It's, it's capital C. It's all believers everywhere from all different denominations of varying levels of maybe faithfulness, but all united, all believing the gospel. There's this, there's this gospel. Different denominations may have different perspectives on secondary aspects of truth and maybe more or right, wrong on those issues. But all are believing the gospel, the good news that God is holy, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that man is fallen, and that the only way that fallen man can be reconciled to holy God is through the sacrifice that the Father sent through the Son to live and to die and to rise again, defeating death, sin, and the grave, satisfying God's justice, rising again in victory, and now calling all those by His Spirit to repent and believe that are joined to Him. That's the church. Everybody that's part of the universal church of God, whether they are Baptist or Methodist or Presbyterian or Pentecostal or, or Anglican or whatever, all of them must believe that gospel message to be part of the body of Christ. And we are connected to all of those people as brothers and sisters united together 
in faith, in Jesus. But the Bible is full of exhortations like this text as to how we are to live with one another, and we can't practically live out those exhortations with people from the universal church of God all over the world. He gives us the local church, the body, people in this room to do life with, to serve, to submit to, to rebuke, to encourage, to exhort, to forgive, to be long-suffering with. All of the one another's in the New Testament, and there are many of them, float in the air aimlessly unless they are applied and lived out in the context of a local church. This is why I think implicit in the New Testament is this idea of a kind of, a kind of committed membership that, that if you're a believer in Jesus, you should be part of a local church There's no verse in the Bible that says you must join a church, but I think there's this implicit, implicit truth in the New Testament where it's not stated directly, but it's just implied that a group of local believers have a kind of formal commitment to one another that in our language, in our culture, we call church membership, where we all know one another's names and we have a kind of certain responsibility to one another. And we we are knit together and responsible for one another as a local church in ways that we are not responsible for our dear brothers and sisters who are Christians in other churches. This is part of God's design to help us live together and to be accountable for one another, to serve one another. More on that if you want to speak to me individually or any of the pastors about what we believe about why Christians should be connected in that sort of formal way to the life of a a local church. So, so we, are, we are together as a local church. But friends, this can be challenging. Can, it not, can, can life in the local church, it can be hard, can't it? I, th- I think every Christian is called, biblically, to live their life in the context of known, authentic, biblical community where they are part of a local church and where they are, their name is known, they're submitting to the life of that congregation, where the elders and pastors know their name and they're, they're part of that congregation. But friends, this can be hard. There are obstacles to this. We, I don't know if you know this or not, but churches are not perfect. Churches, thank you, brother. I mean, churches, churches are often places where we get wounded, right? Churches are places where we get disappointed. Churches are places where we are offended. Churches are places where we fail each other. Churches are places where leaders are not all that they need to be. And I actually think that Americans have bought into this kind of, it's a kind of frailty that we don't realize that that is actually part of God's design to cause us to live out the one another's of the gospel because it forces us to actually be like Jesus as we're patient with one another rather than being part of a perfect community where we would never be forced to actually exercise any meekness or humility of Christ. Listen to what, listen to what Dietrich Bonhoeffer said. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German pastor theologian 
during the time of the rise of the Third Reich in Nazi Germany in the 1920s and 30s and actually was imprisoned by Hitler and then was executed by Hitler uh, right before the end of, the, uh, of World War II. And he wrote a book called Life Together. And this is a f- fantastic quote that I think puts the, the, d- just hits the nail on the head. He says, innumerable times a whole Christian community has broken down because it had sprung from a wish dream. The serious Christian, set down for the first time in a Christian community, is likely to bring with him or her a very definite idea of what Christian life together should be and try to realize it. But God's grace speedily shatters such dreams. Just as surely as God desires to lead us to a knowledge of genuine Christian fellowship, so, listen to this, listen to this wisdom, so surely must we be overwhelmed by a great disillusionment with others, with Christians in general, and if we are fortunate, with ourselves. By sheer grace, God, listen to this, God will not permit us to live even for a brief period in a dream world. Only that fellowship which faces such disillusionment with all its unhappy and ugly aspects begins to be what it should be in God's sight, begins to grasp in faith the promise that is given to it. Friends, Oh, I feel a rant coming. (laughs) Contrast this, contrast this with the beautiful picture that churches want to present so often in our culture of awesomeness. Just, just, don't do it, it'll be bad for your soul. But just peruse like many church websites you know, they just got beautiful people on a stage that's darkened, and they all just look great. And, you know, it's just awesome. And, man, that service was awesome. And it was, everything is awesome. And, and if you come to this church, it's going to be awesome. And the preaching is awesome, and the music is awesome, and our community groups are awesome, and our children's ministry is awesome. But the problem is, nothing is awesome except for heaven. And God has actually designed that we have to deal with each other's unawesomeness. (laughs) I'm just making up words now. And that is actually part of God's design for our good. Man, friends, this is, the God, this is God's beautiful providence in spectacular ways. This is that verse, Romans 8, 28, where it says that he works all things together for the good of those that love him and are called according to his purpose. So, friends, think about Genesis 3. The devil is tempting Adam and Eve, and they fall, and he thinks that he has won a victory. But as we read the Bible, we see that actually it's part of God's design to get glory through the fall of humanity. So he uses our brokenness to put on display his saving power. Friends, God 
intends for us to struggle through life with each other in our imperfections in the dusty, ordinary, inconvenient, hard life of the local church. So God, shatter our dreams, man. Shatter our dreams that are pipe dreams. They're not, they're not biblical pictures. They're, 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 they're indulgent American fantasies. So welcome to Crosspoint. This place is a wreck. <laughs> Praise God. <laughs> and then finally, the third truth. The third truth. Well, it's true. It's true. The third truth is use your gifts for the good of the body. So don't think of yourself more highly than you should. He's put you in a diverse body by the gospel, by Christ, and then he's, he's giving us, he's, he's given each of us gifts to use to serve one another. Look at verse 6. He says, the first part of verse 6, they're having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them. Again, the clear context here is that he's speaking to all and every Christian in his church. So he's saying that you, if you're a believer in Jesus, if God has reborn you, if he has the theological term, is he's, he's regenerated you. He's made you come back to life. Part of salvation is the giving and the bestowing on each believer with the new life that they have, gifts according to the grace given to us that he's apportioned, for the building up of the body. So he says, use them. Now before we look at the gifts that Paul listens, lists here, let's say a few things. The first is that this, this list that we read earlier and we'll read here in just a second, in Romans, the second half of six through the end of eight, mentions several gifts. This is a, a list, one of three lists in Paul's letters where he mentions spiritual gifts. First Corinthians 12 is one of the more well-known ones where he mentions the, the gifts that the Spirit gives. Ephesians 4 uh, is another one where he lists the gifts that the Son gives to the church. And then here we see the, the, lists, the, the list of gifts that, that God, the Father, gives. And so even in that, just think about the Trinity. In, in 1 Corinthians, it's the Spirit. And in Ephesians 4, it's the Son. And here in Romans 12, it's the, the Father. We see this triune giving of gifts. But here's the point I want us to make. I want us to see is that there's 20 or so gifts mentioned. If you add all of them up together, we shouldn't think of these three lists together as exhaustive. They are samplings, examples of spiritual gifts that should be active in the church and that Paul is talking about in the particular context of the local church that he's writing. So while it's very important that we should, should think about these gifts and, 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 and desire to understand what they are, we should be careful not to hyper-focus on just these gifts mentioned. In fact, and some of them that we'll read here in just a second, are broad categories. They're broad categories that, that lots of things can, can fit into, like serving and exhortation that we'll look at in, in a second. So as we, as we look at these gifts, we want to be careful not to miss the broader and bigger point. And it is this, that all Christians, if you are a believer in Jesus and have been made alive by the power of the gospel, God has given you, think about this, this is, this is so clear, 
but yet so often missed in our, in our church culture in America. God has given you a gift to use for the sake of this local body, or if you're visiting from another church, whatever local body you're a part of and accountable to, for the sake of building up that local body so that together, collectively, we would be a clearer display of the gospel that we preach to an onlooking world so that God would use our life together as a local church to be an aroma that he draws unbelievers to himself. Friends, that's, that's spectacular. It's simple, but it's spectacular, and that's the main point. So let's look, let's look at a few of these gifts, and then we'll, we'll conclude our time. There's several that are mentioned here. The first one is prophecy, and I will spend a little bit more time on this one because I think it's a little bit more controversial and hard to understand. He says there in the second half of, of verse 6, if prophecy in proportion to our faith. So he's saying that if, if any in the church in Rome have this gift of prophecy, they should use it in proportion to the faith that God has given them. And I think, again, this is, there's going to be different measures of this in the life of the church. So what is prophecy? This is a notoriously difficult and controversial gift to understand and define. And I want to say that it has been a source of controversy and discussion amongst scholars for centuries. And so, taking the admonition of Paul in verse 3, not to think of yourself more highly than you ought to, I'm not going to attempt to solve all of this discussion in the next three or four minutes. That would be thinking of myself more highly than I ought to. But let me just give you a couple, a couple pointers to help us understand this gift biblically. I think prophecy is a spontaneous revelation from God, a word from God that God gives for the church's edification, instruction, encouragement, or warning. Now, when we, sometimes in our language in English, when we hear the word prophecy, we tend to think of like Nostradamus, some something predicted in the future. And that certainly is a part of biblical prophecy at times, but the prominent idea of biblical prophecy is not prediction, not predicting the future, but an inspired, spontaneous revelation of God to a person for the edification, exhortation, instruction, judging of the people of God for the good of God's people. So what did, what did prophets do in the Old Testament and the New Testament? They spoke the word of God. They were part of, I think, we see in the Bible, prophets in the New Testament were part of the foundation of the New Testament church with the apostles. In fact, this is what Paul says. Let me read to you Ephesians chapter 2, verses 18 through 22. He says, For through him, speaking of Jesus, we both have access in one spirit to the Father, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, listen to verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, meaning Jesus, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So in this analogy, Paul is talking about a building, but it's very similar to the body analogy. We're, we're together, we're one, we're, we're knit together, and it's built on, look at verse 20, the foundation of the apostles and prophets. They were foundational in the life 
of the church. Here's the question that is so controversial, and I'm going to give you my thoughts on it, and I want to say, not thinking of myself more highly than I ought to, that I very well could be wrong, and that many faithful scholars who have forgot more about the Bible than I even know disagree with what the stance that I take. There's good arguments on both sides. There's much debate about this within faithful circles of evangelical Christianity. And here's the question. Are there still prophets today? Is the gift of prophecy still in operation today? I am persuaded more, and these are thorough arguments that I think go beyond our setting this morning. I am more persuaded by the argument that says that there are not prophets today and that the gift of New Testament prophecy is no longer in operation. I could speak much more about that with you individually if you'd like to, but I base that why I think Ephesians chapter 2 in verse 20 that we just read says that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Now, he's not talking when he says prophets there about Old Testament prophets who wrote the Old Testament. So we have the, the church, is, the foundation of the church, I think, is the word of God spoken. And so the Old Testament came through these Old Testament prophets, Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Isaiah. And they spoke the word of God that was recorded and became the Old Testament, the word of God. And then in the New Testament, I don't think here in verse 20, he's talking about Old Testament prophets when he says verse 20, because he mentions prophets after apostles. I think those two things are, are two people that are joined together that are functioning in the life of the New Testament. All the Old Testament prophets are dead. And he's saying that there is this group of people, the apostles, those that were with Jesus. And through the apostles, through the hand of the apostles, we get the New Testament. So all 27 books of the New Testament are written by either one of the apostles or by their ministry associates. And one of the proofs that the New Testament church used to determine whether or not a letter became part of the canon or part of the New Testament is whether or not it came through an apostle. But as this word of God, this New Testament, was being written, God gave these apostles to preach the word of God and these prophets to speak the word of God. And here's the point that I find decisive, is that this foundation has been laid. It's, it's been laid. It doesn't have to be laid again. And now we have the Bible. There are no more apostles because they've written the Bible and the prophets that served the church in this time as the New Testament was being brought together through the apostles to speak the word of God are part of the foundation that has been laid, and now we're standing on that foundation, and that foundation is the Word of God, which is Christ and His Word. So I don't think that, that the gift of prophecy, as we see it in the New Testament, is operative in the church today. But hear me on this. Hear me on this. Here, I do believe to say that I don't think the gift of prophecy is in operation today and that there are not prophets does not mean that I don't think that the Spirit of God doesn't still speak in and through His people. Of course He does. I, I hope He's doing it right now to some extent. Right? And I hope the conversations in Crosspoint are filled with unction, anointing, 
wisdom from the Holy Spirit as we glean the foundation of the word of God and as we submit ourselves to it, that our speech would be filled with spirit-inspired speech as we exhort and encourage one another. But I would, I would stop short of saying that that's a, an authoritative gift of prophecy. I would say Tom Schreiner uses the word impression, a word of encouragement, exhortation, rebuke. The point is that it is subordinate to the Bible. And here's the problem. Here's the problem. I think unwittingly that people that believe that, that prophets are still in operation today, and many of them also believe that apostles are still in operation today, is that they, and I think this is often unwitting, they attach too strong of an authority to the subjective opinion of that person, that prophet or person whoever's calling themselves a prophet or an apostle. And unwittingly, I want to be generous, unwittingly, it undermines the word of God, which is sufficient for everything that we need. And so, yes, the spirit of God works through us, should fill the speech in the church, should, Lord willing, fill every sermon and every class that is taught in Crosspoint, should fill our conversations as we exhort and rebuke one another, but all of that, all of that spirit-inspired speech should be subordinate to the foundation which is laid, which is the word of the apostles which we have. So the church is led by the prophetic word which we have written down for us, which is the Bible. So every word that is spoken, everything I say, every class that is taught, every exhortation in a small group, every discipleship conversation in Crosspoint should be subordinated and tested and proved according to the word of God. And so friends, we, we need not wonder about authority because the authority has been laid. It's the word of God. He goes on to say then, if service in our serving... I think this is this is word deacon. He says, if in our deaconing, we should deacon. To be a Christian is to be a deacon, a servant. Christ himself calls himself a, a deacon. He came not to be served, but to serve. Christ came not to deacon, not to be deaconed, but to deacon. The church should be full of deacons and servants. Every person in this room, everybody, look, everybody has the gift of service in some way or another. Everybody in this room. The one who teaches in his teaching. I think this has many applications. I think a little bit of what I'm doing, Lord willing, is teaching right now. I think it happens in our community groups, in one-on-one -on -one discipling conversations. As Christians exhort one another, they are teaching one another. The one who exhorts, verse 8, in his exhortation, inspired speech, Holy Spirit-driven speech to spur one another on to godliness. So what is this saying is men talk about something more than football. Man, I love football. I love football. I was raised by a football coach. I, I don't, I, I, I love it. <laughs> but let's not let the life of the men in this church start and stop with discussion about football. Exhort one another. How are you, brother? This is practical. How are you? Can I pray for you? How are you fighting for, for, for godliness in your life? How are you doing? How are you doing? Not, oh man, my team was robbed. Or Justin Fields transferred to Ohio State. 
for all you SEC fans. I mean, let's talk about that, but let that be five seconds, and then let's get to exhortation. The one who leads with zeal. Why does he say you need to have zeal for leading? Because leading can be tiring, man. It can be tiring. Pray for your leaders. And the one who does acts of, oh, I missed one there, the one who contributes in generosity, man, we all have something to contribute. I think this goes far beyond just giving, although we should all give, but we should give, we should contribute to the life of the church with generosity, with cheerfulness, and the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Why do we need cheerfulness when we do acts of mercy? Because when we have to be merciful to one another, it can be very discouraging. And we need to be cheerful. Some practical exhortations as I land this plane. How, how do you discover your gifts? Friends, um, I, I don't think that the best way to do that, although I think some of you maybe have been served by this in the past in other church settings, kind of this idea of a spiritual gift inventory, this test that you take. Um, I, 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 I don't think those are the most helpful way to go about discovering your spiritual gifts. I don't think that you should you know, hunker down with a piece of paper and internally answer some questions about yourself. I, I don't think any of us have the perspective to truly, I think, I think, I think you should, I think those can be helpful, but, but I just think that they're often sort of too individualistic. I think the best way to, dis, I mean, what did the church do before American publishing Christian companies came up with spiritual gift inventory? You know, I mean, <laughs> now I'm not dogging, I'm just, I'm just saying, what have Christians done for the first 1900 years before Lifeway came about with spiritual gift tests, right? Well, I think what they did was they kind of hunkered down and did life together. They exhorted one another. They, they drew stuff out of each other. Their, their, their life together was a kind of culture of encouragement and feedback where they weren't so afraid of hurting each other's feelings. Hey, you think you're a teacher? Nobody else does. So maybe you should, maybe you should do something else, brother, sister, right? Or, you know, you, you think, or, but man, you're great at that. And it's not an American church culture where only things that are done in the large group gathering on the stage receive prominence. That's another kind of idolatry that undercuts our community. So we only value things that sort of give us a sort of glory. Friends, I mean, come on. That's another rant that I'm not going to do because the hour is late. But you get what I'm saying here. That the one who serves is part of the most Christ-like thing you can do. The one who, and we're going to get to this next week, outdoes one another by showing zeal and loving one another. That we're conspiring behind each other's backs to love each other more. Friends, that's... That's, man, all of us are called to that. And then where should you use them? Friends, I think you should use them primarily in the local church. I think that's the setting. I'm not saying we don't do things outside. Of course we do. Of course we do. But I think the clear context here is life in the local church. Oh, I'm, 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 I'm done. My time is up. I don't have a bow to put on the end of this. I'm just going to pray right now and ask that the Lord helped us with this sermon, okay? I, I don't, I hope, you, I hope you've gotten this. Lord, as we come now to respond, humble us, Lord, humble us. May we not think of ourselves more highly than we ought to. 
Lord, may we see that we're part of a body that's diverse and beautiful, that we're knitted together by Christ. And, and Lord, may we, may we just fight to use our gifts. May we fight. May, may, you, may, you, may you shatter our, our idolatrous dreams. And may you, may you give us a stiff dose of what reality is. And then may we roll up our sleeves and fight to do life together for the glory of God. And may you use our life together as a local church, an ordinary, imperfect, rugged, messed up, beautiful mess as a church. May you use our life to actually show something far greater than American awesomeness. May you use it to show the beauty of the gospel that saves. And may you draw people to the life of Christ, to new life in Christ, through the life of this congregation as we serve each other in this way. And I pray that you do this all, Lord, for our good, for your glory, for the salvation of many in our city. In Jesus' name, amen.